2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host Matt Miller.
3: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg
2: Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and at bloomberg.com/podcast. Let's bring in Allison Williams. She's the pro on this. She's our senior analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, covering the bank. She's also the co-director of America's research for Bloomberg Intelligence. So she's got a bunch of people uh, that report to her, rely on her for the management of that biz. So she's a busy person. We appreciate getting some time here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Allison, let's start with Goldman Sachs here. Um, you know, from my perspective, I've been competing against these guys forever, looking, you know, really admiring the franchise there. A little bit of a miss here this quarter on the trading, the fixed income commodities and credit and all that kind of stuff. From your perspective, what happened?
4: So I think, um, you know, obviously not benefiting um, from some of the areas of the other banks. And, and just to put that in context, so they missed on fixed. They sort of made it up with equities and fees. But net net, the other, the other banks posted big positive surprises. They have more momentum going on. Uh, yes, Goldman probably benefited last year. Well, we, we're pretty sure they benefited last year from commodities, which is a business that they're rel- they have a lot more relative strength than the other peers. But the bottom line is there's just moment, less momentum in that business going forward. They, they earn more from the other banks reporting today from that business. That's a negative. Bank of America is really the interesting one. They've been gaining share in equities and uh, a fixed income. And you know part of that is some investments that they've made. But I think they're also benefiting from some of the troubles at Credit Suisse. If you think about where Bank of America has some of their strengths, uh, the securitization business, those spread-type products, those are businesses that, that Credit Suisse is relatively strong in, um, and much of that business has sort of uh, gone away from them and perhaps going to Bank America.
3: Is there a best fixed-income trading business on the street? Is there a, a bank that's known for its fixed-income trading? Like, if I have a multibillion-dollar fund and I want to do work with one big firm, is there one I, I would yeah, obviously choose? J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Okay. Really? I was just wondering. Oh, I would have said Goldman, but she also's got so the informed think, opinion.
4: Yeah, so you're thinking so I guess that the reason why you're probably thinking more of Goldman. Goldman has, you know, really strength with the hedge fund customers, the asset management customers, um, you know, that that, that research frequently deals with. I think JP Morgan has an additional leg up with the corporate Uh, Type customers, and so I think um, you know they are the biggest in that business. Goldman has made, I mean, some pretty remarkable market share um, gains in the years, which again might be why your why your mind is going to them. But J.P. Morgan's still the biggest in that business. So,
2: A, give me a sense of where they stack up against the J.P. Morgans, against the against the Goldmans, against the Morgan Stanley's, and some of those. Capital markets businesses, because again, the, the the guts of Bank of America on that side is is Merrill Lynch. Um, where where are they now? You know, ten years on from this this merger.
4: So I think you know they they've definitely had some fits and starts, and I think if you look at their business over the long term. It's it's not been, it you know, it doesn't have sort of the same volatility as some of the other um, bigger names that we're talking about, J.P. Morgan and Goldman. Um, you know, they've sort of kept that business relatively steady. Um, you know, Bank of America and, and UBS as well just, you know, tend to be sort of quarter in, quarter out generating sort of the same amounts of, of, of revenue. But... In the you know in the last couple of years, and I think you know this has also been helped by some people exiting prime brokerage. Right? Um, they sort of stepped up uh, one of their capital requirements, and they figured you know we we're, we're going to add some more balance sheet to this trading business. So they invested in prime brokerage, they invested in macro, which is rates and currencies. So as I said, they're they're good at those credit spread securitization type businesses that that Credit Suisse was good at, but they've made investments. In the interest rate business the currencies business like that's sort of the business that we're relatively more bullish on um uh, you know this year and the years ahead just because we think you have all these trillions of dollars still sitting on central bank balance sheets there's going to be uncertainty there's going to be impre- you know this is an unprecedented situation and we think that the interest rate uncertainty extends
3: we're in for a world of volatility for well we're in it already um and it's got to continue with with all of those variables in terms of um, the investment banking business, investment banking revenue, uh, how do they do?
4: So, uh, you know, Goldman did a little bit better. All the banks did a little bit better. But, you know, we're looking at 20 to 25% declines and calling that a win because last year we are down 50%. Um, but things are still weak there. And you're starting to see these headlines about, um, you know, cuts in the investment banking business, um, you know... Th- the CEOs have t- uh, the CEOs of the investment banks have talked about their clients um, you know still not really adjusting to uh, the newer valuation so uh, you know as we know tech has had a-, a few good months but we're just not back to where we uh, were and some of those companies waiting to go public may not have adjusted their expectations um, the other thing that the-, the investment bank CEOs have said is look when the Fed, um, stops raising rates, we think that that could really um, put a flood of issuance. You know that remains to be seen when that happens again. We're we're sort of in an, a pretty remarkable period where, you know, J.P. J.P. Diamond. It's interesting, right? Like they talked about <laughs> Fed cuts are being baked into their net interest income guidance, but then he said everybody should prepare for <laughs> higher rates for longer. And so you see that yep. you're getting those contradicting messages. So.
2: Allison, you've been following these companies for a long time. You've seen management teams come and go. How was the street? How were investors viewing David Solomon, the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs?
4: I mean, I th- I think for Solomon, it's still a little bit wait and see. Okay, I know that there's you know a lot of the negative uh, press and criticism have come around the consumer business. I would keep in mind that. Even though that's that's sort of being done away with under Solomon, it was really started under Wankfein. Right. That that was a huge deviation for Goldman. Um, you know, parts of that business remain. You know, we, we're hearing a lot about this this new Apple product on the deposit side of things, but the Marcus loans. Um, you know, frankly, I don't think any investors really ever believed in that business mm-hmm. i always yep. thought the strategy was sort of like a me too from like the 90s so <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna um, say i like
3: that strategy i know you i know you have hated it forever and paul also has uh, never understood the consumer to me it's just high-end super luxury if you're doing your banking with goldman they sachs they've made it. they already have it. It. But it's, that
4: but it's not going out but it's it's the it's the strategy with which they went after these loans which was competing on price well, I mean, they failed, so the, I was obviously lo- wrong. <laughs> the loan book, right? So, so they're still trying to go after those deposits. Yeah, right? they're trying yep. to go after it with using the Apple premium brand. You know, they they're going after CDs with premium pricing in their market. And product, they always had this but great, but they're not the, not the loans.
2: They, and they always had, and they still have. But one of their their real selling points for decades has been you sell your company. A will advise you take the fee there, and then when you have that the proceeds in your pocket. Oh, let me introduce you to my private wealth manager in Dallas, Texas, or in San Francisco, and he'll he or she will help you manage this money. Right, uh, we'll make fees there too. So they've always had that. But right. Marcus was more consumer. Marcus
4: right? was more, you know, let's broaden out, let's broaden out the net, right? Like, yep. are we leaving all this white space behind? And you know, let's try to do a few different things there. Um, you know. As we as we just discussed, the deposits I, I think is interesting in getting getting those customers in the door, um, but the credit card lending strategy was really like a price a, a pricing strategy, mm-hmm. and that's you know I I don't know any bank where it's won over the long term. Right. Eventually, that all right. Morgan Stanley before the open tomorrow is that what we have? So Morgan Stanley. Be, be, uh, People, I think, are going to be listening, I'm going to be listening to find out, you know, Andy C left Merrill. He's going over to Citi to be the head of their global wealth management. Is there going to be more competition uh, in the Uh, US? Keep in mind, Morgan Stanley bought that, you know, Smith Barney business. They're a wealth powerhouse. Um, part of that came from Citi a long time ago. Yep. Equities trading, you know, has been generally been disappointing. So that's not great for Citi. I mean, that's not great for Morgan Stanley. Excuse me. We'll see how their fixed income holds up. All
2: right.
3: And we'll see if anyone else says, you know, AI can reduce headcount. <laughs>
4: yes, exactly. We like that.
3: Because we, that was a good line from,
2: what was it, Moynihan? Yeah, Moynihan yeah. On, on Top Live. So that was, you know, if you're you know, working on wall street saying, Oh, great. Now I got another, I got to worry about these stupid machines taking over my job. All right, Allison Williams, uh, as always, thank you so much for uh, finding a few minutes in your busy schedule to come in and get us up to date on some of these numbers coming out of bank of America and Goldman Sachs, a little bit of a miss for Goldman Sachs. It doesn't happen very often, but so the stock's off just a little bit here. Uh, but we'll continue with these, uh, big banks, big investment banks reporting. We've got Morgan Stanley tomorrow before the open, uh, and Alison will be all over
0: that and her team.
5: You're listening to The team, Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern
1: on Bloomberg.com,
5: the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. If you're Fox, uh, Fox Communications,
2: Fox Corporation, Rupert Murdoch, all the Fox network, you're in a little bit of a legal suit here with Dominion Voting Systems, and the potential risks there are pretty material. So. Believe it or not, Bloomberg Intelligence has a bunch of litigation analysts for just this type of analysis. Matt Cheltenham joins us. He's your senior litigation analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And I happen to know that he is in Vegas as we speak at the National Association of Broadcasters Conference. This is my first question, Matt, most important. And this is important, so get it right. Where are you staying?
6: (laughs) I am at the Aria uh, Hotel Nice. All right. That's
2: new school. That's new school. Very good. I'm a Bellagio guy, so... You know, go to the high rollers craps table. And use where my do they have the, um,
3: the fake Paris and the Venice yeah. and all
2: that stuff? That's right there on the Strip. Oh, I thought it yeah, was a specific hotel. Well, no, Paris is the hotel. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, and the Venetian is that, and they are both awesome properties. All right, Matt, talk to us about Fox and Dominion voting systems. What is the lawsuit and where are we now?
6: Yeah, so we're at the very beginning of of this this lawsuit, heading to trial now. Um, this is a, a suit about uh, Fox's election coverage um, over about a month from November into December after the election, when Dominion's name kept coming up in in interviews um, that that Fox held. And Dominion's this voting software company; its software w- was used in about thirty states during the election. And a number of allegations were made suggesting that Dominion had had kind of rigged the election. And so now this is a defamation claim brought against Fox News claiming that you basically have wiped out our business by these false statements that you made. And it seeks initially they saw one point six billion dollars in their complaint. I think that's come down a little bit, but it's a big, big deal um, and, and a serious financial threat to the Fox.
3: Why 1.6? You know, when I sue somebody, typically it's for a million or so. Oh, yeah? Okay. How, do, how do they get to $1.6 billion?
6: Yeah, so I think that's a, that's one of the most important things to watch going forward, is, is how credible is that number, is that damages number? And so they put $1.6 in their complaint, and as I said, I think it's come down a little bit. What they're looking at is, one, hum, what is our lost profits because of this, and two, what is our lost value as an enterprise? And I think it's that second category that's going to be the focus here. They have an expert who comes in that says, when we look at our, our value as an enterprise over the next 10 years, and we're basically so damaged as a business that you've wiped us out. We, we value that at about $920 million. Now, Fox, Fox comes back and says, that's crazy. Um, you, you you independently were valued as a company in 2020 for about $300 million. And you, your business is actually doing better after the election. So I think, I think Dominion has a strong case about defamation. I don't know that it has a real strong case to get to that billion-dollar figure. But one other footnote on that, though. Punitive damages are also in play here. The judge refused to take them off the table. And so it's not just that... Uh, direct harm to the business, the jury has the ability to come in and, and, and effectively punish Fox. And, and sometimes punitive damages can go as much as five times the econo- economic damages. So that's where you really get to, to big deal numbers. It gets you for for there. Yep. Yes. Hey, Matt, yeah. if
2: I'm Fox, why can't I just claim First Amendment protection?
6: Yeah, so that's what they've been doing, and they brought in Paul Clement, you know, the the noted First Amendment Supreme Court lawyer to defend them here, and, and, and they tried that defense, uh, but the, the court has mostly shot it down. But Fox, you know, Fox makes the First Amendment argument. This was the most important story of the day. The president of the United States is saying that the election was rigged. How can we not report on that? And and, and so, but, but the problem is... Um, there is real no there really is no defense in, in 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 the first amendment that lets you air allegations that you know to be false or that you strongly believe to be false and and so the so the, the, the judge so far has pretty much said no we're not going to go there i already have decided these are false statements that you made and so the only question in this trial now isn't the first amendment it's 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 whether you knew they were false or whether you had a high probability to believe they were false.
3: If television news can't make stuff up anymore, then where are we as a country? (laughs) I think the First
2: Amendment was for, like, mistakes.
3: You know, the the issue for me is, do we get to see Rupert Murdoch? Do we get to see Lachlan um, testify? Do we get to see Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson testify? We've already seen some of their, uh, you know, SMS text messages, and it didn't look good.
6: Right. Absolutely. And and I think that right now, you know, I, I still think a settlement is a, is a pretty good bet over the next couple of months before a jury actually announces its decision. But I wouldn't be at all surprised to see this trial advance pretty far. So I, I think it's more likely than not you are going to see those witnesses called to the stand. And, and I think Rupert, Rupert Murdoch is pretty early on the list, yep. you know, potentially in the next couple of days.
2: All right, Matt, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Matt Sheltonhelm, he's a senior litigation analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, he's in Vegas. Matt, make sure you go over... To the high-end craps table. Bellagio, use my name. They'll take care of you over there. So Matt Shelton, he covers all that in litigation stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. So it's great to get his informed legal opinion when you get some of these big legal cases uh, surrounding uh, certain companies.
5: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg in.
7: Let's turn to
2: real estate, commercial real estate. And when you want to do that, because, I, I, you know, people aren't coming back to the office. That's how it is, particularly here in Midtown Manhattan. But maybe it's different in other parts of the world. But Jeff Langbaum joins us. He's a senior REIT analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Jeff, talk to us about I'd love to get your view on commercial real estate, office real estate in particular. How do you think? office real estate is going to evolve in this country, you know, over the next several years, because boy, it's changed since pre-pandemic levels.
8: Yeah, right. Well, first, I want to say that nobody may be buying equities broadly, but definitely nobody's buying REITs right now. So <laughs> that's that's something we're definitely keeping an eye on. Um, so the, the office is definitely a very different environment than it was pre-pandemic. And uh, right now we are in a very long kind of figure-it-out period, I think, where we're going to we're going have to see how much, how much space uh, tenants need, if any. We're going to have to figure out what properties are actually worth. And then we're going to have to figure out what can be refinanced once uh, mortgages start coming due. So it's going to be a long period of time where we have to figure out what the office environment is going to look like.
3: What does the, I mean, I'm assuming everybody uh, refinanced at Near zero when they could. So when does that wall of debt? When's the first
8: wall come due for maturities? It's starting. Um, it's it's started this this year. Um, you know, there's there's a, a big chunk big chunk coming of of debt that was um, issued in the 2000. 2000- 18 time frame um and like you said not only were interest rates at, at lows but asset values were at highs and cash flows were you know everyone was projecting continuous rise in cash flows so <clears throat> you have loan-to-values that, you know, are going to be elevated. If you start marking values down, you have interest rates that, you know, if it was floating debt has already risen and it's starting to present a problem. If it's not floating debt, then the refi is going to present a problem. Um, So, you know, but like I said, it's going to be a long-term process to figure out how this is going to work because lenders don't want to take over uh, office buildings that are, you know, difficult to operate in this environment. Um, and, uh, so landlords or borrowers are, you know, kind of trying to figure out what they can, can negotiate in order to get properties refinanced.
2: So I'm just looking at the Bloomberg, um, property, uh, REIT office property index. It peaked in October of 2020, uh, and it's now down 60%, six, zero percent from that peak in uh, February of 2020. And Jeff, I, I, I don't even feel like I can go in and, and buy the bottom here. Cause I, like you mentioned, a I don't know. Don't know what my cash flows are going to be because I don't know how much space my t- t- tenants are really going to need longer term. And two, I don't think I can finance it at these rates. So I mean, I, I don't see. Does this is this just the new normal and everybody's got to adjust?
8: No, I-, I don't think so. I-, I-, I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, you know, th- so the first wave of, of declining prices was you know speculation. O- declining prices in the office REIT, uh, index and in the shares themselves was you know, speculation over how much um, property values were actually falling. You, you've gotten some pressure recently <clears throat> as the banks have started to struggle um, where you know, there's real concern over the, over the financing. But I, I don't think that it's a, um, a catch-all for every property and every owner of properties. There's going to be a differentiation between quality. <clears throat> the owners of better quality assets are going to be able to attract tenants Uh, And the lower-quality assets are going to need to find some alternative use, um, as a polite way of saying they are obsolete as office buildings. (laughs) And and it's going to take some time for that to get worked out. Um, And so, you know, you may not want to buy the entire index, but there may be some names that have overcorrected to to, – Figure out where the values actually are. All
2: right, uh, amazing stuff. We're gonna next time you're in New York, Jeff. Let us know. We're gonna get you in the studio here. Jeff Langbaum, senior read Annals for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving the latest on this property in uh, index property market out there.
5: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Tesla's got some earnings coming up. They, and that's always something to pay attention to. A, if you're Tesla, shareholder or creditor. But just if you're interested in this the whole EV issue, transition from, that uh, I know Matt's uh, all over. But Joel Levington joins us. He's a director of credit research at Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, Joel, you cover the debt of Tesla. What's the? What's your view of kind of how the company's evolving here from... You know you've been following this company since the beginning how do you view kind of where they are right now and kind of what their growth plans are
7: sure paul yeah they've they really moved from the hunter to the hunted uh at this point point. and really for them they have a couple of strategic weapons that others don't one is a dominant cost position you know if you think about their profitability they're going to have about 14 percent margins this year if you look at their peer group it's about eight percent and so they can use that in terms of pricing and you're seeing them cut prices uh, aggressively some say it's because there's no demand
2: that's uh, what i say but you're saying but the the bull case is it's from hey it's um, the, a position of strength they've got the margin and they can drive market share and that's good.
7: Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, whether you know, it might be that looking at the at the same picture uh, just slightly differently. The fact is, is that they grew thirty eight percent, right? And your peers are growing three or four percent. So whether you say in that, terms of what top line sales, yeah. yeah. So it, you know, like one can say, hey, there, there's not enough demand to hit their fifty percent, but relative to peers, they're blowing them away, uh, and they have the ability to to use that and 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 scale on their margins uh, and still gain share at the same time. So uh, whether you look at it as, hey, they're missing their 50% or, hey, they're you know, doing much better than their peers, it's going in the right direction for them, uh, certainly from a credit perspective. And because it has been that way, their balance sheet has a huge amount of cash uh, and very little debt at this point. So they can continue to do that. I, um, saw,
3: I saw a funny headline this morning. Um, Mercedes-Benz aims to double EV sales this year. And at first I was like, wow, that's a big deal. But if you only sold like 25 EVs last year, <laughs> it's not that difficult. Now, if Tesla were to double EV sales, that would be a major feat because they're, they're selling like um, well, well over a million cars a year now.
7: That's totally right. And, you know, I, you could go back and forth on whether 50% growth a year is doable or not. I, to me, that sounds like a very, very aggressive scale. But what, it, what it's really telling you Except is for that, when you
3: tell me that they have 38% growth and 14% margins. I instantly think, well, they could have margins and boost that to over 50. No problemo.
7: For sure, Mark. And, 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 and I will tell you, Matt, like the, the real thing for them is kind of becoming the Toyota of EVs. Meaning, as you move your price point down, the amount of consumers that can afford your vehicles grows very, very significantly. And that's really where they're going, is to become the affordable car, which was really- you know, like master plan, master plan, part one from uh, from Tesla.
2: So the balance sheet, how does the credit market view Tesla? I mean, if if they wanted to go raise more capital, could they do that at a reasonable rate spread?
7: Oh, 100% Paul, when okay. uh, you know, it, it's amazing that in 2018, uh, Elon Musk is talking about being in manufacturing hell, and just trying to survive. Today, they have over $22 billion of cash on hand. Uh, they've been upgraded seven times in the last two and a half years. I've never seen that happen for another automotive really? company. And look at
2: that, north of 20% EBITDA margins. I mean, that's, I could lend against that.
7: Exactly. So, okay. you know, like right now, you could probably do a green bond for 10 years at under four and a half percent. So Really? a, a very cost-efficient way if they wanted to, say, build out a captive finance unit, which a lot of auto companies do as another revenue stream. Does it
3: matter that they've had, I mean... You're a, a credit guy, but Paul and I are too dumb and we just focus on the stock. So yep. um, they had a drop uh, in market cap from like $1.2 trillion down to $600 billion, which sounds like, oh, that's, that's a horrible wipeout. But to be fair, um, you know, they're just back where they were two years ago. So they had an incredible climb during the pandemic uh, and then a, a, a drop back to normal levels. They're
7: still a behemoth. Oh, for sure. And keep in mind how rates have extended during that period too. And for companies that are um, long duration cash flow companies like them, when you have a a big growth, you're going to have that in a upcycle in terms of rates. But in that period, Matt, uh, their CDS has outperformed. So what it's telling you is that from a risk perspective, people think that it actually has less risk than it did two years ago, even though the market cap is half the size. That's interesting. All
2: right. So, how about the other auto companies, uh, Ford, GM? I mean, all the, all the other big public ones that, on that have public debt outstanding that you cover, this industry is making this this transition like we've never seen before. If I'm a creditor, how nervous am I about going from the traditional internal combustion engine, which I can model, I know what the profits are and I know what the growth is to this EV thing. Are, are,
7: is and the fun? other car
3: makers make a ton of margin yes. on the big ICE cars, right? And yep. nothing on electrics.
7: That's right, in, in fact, Ford, uh, its Model E uh, business or its EV business is expected to lose $3 billion this year. Um, just to put that in perspective. Yep. But really uh, for Tesla, they're in a very unique place because they have these other companies, you know, Uh, in a very tight grip, obviously any sort of pricing pressure that they put on them uh, just means more opportunity for them and and a tougher uh, capability for Ford and GM. But what I would say, Paul, to your specific question, is that if you're a creditor, you're probably not that scared of the situation, despite the fact that this evolution is very unique. And that's really because at the end of the day, the average bond in in the sector is about three and a half years and uh, there'll still be plenty of ICE engines sold over the next three and a half years to uh, to pay the bills. So
2: the big car companies don't go out with 10 year, 20 year paper?
7: No, most of the debt, I would say about 75% of the debt is attached to the captive finance companies. Uh, So if you think of like a lease or a loan, that's really where the debt is financed. There's very little at the manufacturing units because they're so cyclical, uh, you really can't put much leverage on them.
3: You wrote about Ferrari's tiny financial services unit. I, I always find the, this part of the business interesting because it's a little bit opaque to uh, people focused on the manufacturers and the, especially the stock side. H- who's in the best position in terms of a finance unit? Because as rates rise, you wanna have a very strong finance unit.
7: You do, and really it's the ones that have the best credit quality that are in the best position. So a company like a Toyota or a Mercedes Really, or BMW, they really stand out above the others. A company like Ford, and I would say that they have as an operator, are a very good operator. Their uh, interest costs will go up about $800 million this year just because of rates and that is hard to pass through when your average uh, car has increased about 25 or 30 percent over the last couple of years affordability affordability really is the word of the yeah. year for, for autos i think
3: of gm and volkswagen we probably talk about them the most as the biggest competitors to tesla mm-hmm. right because uh volkswagen has invested so much money in building out its evs general motors as well seems like they're in a position to just explode in terms of EV sales. How do they look uh, from credit quality perspective?
7: Uh, well, I'm not a, a fan of Volkswagen, have been for a long time. Uh, I do think with, with both of those companies, one of the, the key differences between a, a Volkswagen and a General Motors versus a Tesla is the amount of products that they have. There's a reason why Tesla only has a handful of products and they scale the heck out of them as much as they can versus having a very wide, broad range. You can't get the same scale and obviously, you have to have more marketing on top of it, so again, from your cost position, you're much better off being in the Tesla spot than one of the other peers, despite both of them being you know like very, very strong. Their operators. size hurts
3: them is what you're saying
7: it does it does hey, if I'm buying a Ferrari or a Lamborghini,
2: I'm not financing it. I'm just put throwing down the
7: amex right Do, pretty much yeah, I don't think you even bring in the Amex, you just uh you know like uh, you, you wire take out, duffel, take a duffel out the bag. wallet and <laughs> 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 I mean I
2: just walk in and you know. Yeah,
3: why do they have here? a financial services unit? What does Ferrari do with the financial services unit?
7: Yeah, they have a very small one just for, uh, for a few folks in the US. It's very different than, let's say, Porsche, which has a much, much bigger and more meaningful uh, finance company. So there is a difference in customer between a Porsche owner and a Ferrari owner. Uh, if you're Ferrari, uh, you're like Mr. Sweeney or yourself, you're, uh, you're living large. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I wish. Can't I wish that were the case. <laughs> yeah, I
2: can't imagine. You know, if I'm again, if I'm in the, if I'm a Lamborghini, Ferrari kind of buyer, I'm not worried. about Do you know the how much liquidity? an Aventador costs? How I mean, you're looking
3: at a base price of over four hundred thousand. dollars Wow, well <laughs> over
2: four hundred thousand dollars. And when you add options, you know, you know I was just out in Carmel, and there are Aventadors parked on the street. That's, I mean, it's just incredible. I would never take it out of the garage, but, but that's, that's the level of wealth out there. All right, Joel. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Joe Levington, he's a director of credit research for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He doesn't mail it in slash phone it in like other directors of research at BI, so we appreciate him (laughs) coming into the (laughs) office. It's good stuff. Don't get Uh, him in trouble. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Uh, he, He gets in trouble all on his own. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea
6: what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you.
4: He's become even more larger than life. Fine Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars.
9: They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain.
5: Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Here's a story I have no idea what to do with. Here's the headline. Chat GPT, can decode FedSpeak, predict stock moves from headlines? Where, Where are I, we going in the world?
3: I, I thought it was a great story. It is. and But it does, um, we do say in that story, or Justine Lee says she wrote the story for us at Bloomberg News, that, of course, there already are um, fairly intelligent uh, algorithms out there that decode this kind of stuff every yep. day, right? I mean, Bloomberg publishes um, stories that are intended for machines to <laughs> consume, uh, to read, and then um, parse. So... This is just, I think from what I'm reading here, um, a little bit of progress in terms of the ability of these AI programs.
2: All right, Justina Lee, Bloomberg News, uh, the reporter on this story joins us now uh, from our London studio. Justina, fascinating story you have here. Tell us kind of what's going on.
10: Yeah, I mean, like every other field, finance has seen an avalanche of research about what ChatGPT means for everyone. And we're starting to see some preliminary results here. And this time, my story is based on two academic papers. I mean, one argues that you could use ChatGPT to classify if a sentence in a Federal Reserve statement is dovish and or hawkish. And in this case, they compare it to what a human analyst uh, might classify. And in the other case, um, they asked ChatGPT if a certain corporate news headline is good or bad for a stock. And then they found that that answer correlated with how the stock actually subsequently performed.
3: So, yeah, I thought the Fed paper was interesting. They compare um, ChatGPT's translation to that of Bryson. I guess, like an intern at the Fed. He's like a 24-year-old kid known for his intelligence and curiosity. Did 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 ChatGPT beat Bryson, or did Bryson do better?
10: Well, in this case, they used Bryson as a benchmark. Um, so the idea isn't necessarily that ChatGPT is better than humans, but that ChatGPT was better than prior technologies and coming close to human thought. And one amazing thing about ChatGPT is not only can it classify if the sentence is dervish div- or hawkish, it can even like explain why it classified the sentence that way. And in this particular case, they actually found that a lot of the time, ChatGPT's explanations were very similar to Bryson, who um, Google tells me is an actual research um, analyst <laughs> at the Richmond Fed. So the, the two explanations were actually pretty similar. So
2: where does this technology go from here, Justina? I mean, is this something that... It's just over time every day. It's the iterations are going to make it better and better.
10: Yeah, I mean, it does feel that way. I mean, currently, it's very commonplace in hedge funds to use machines to read earnings transcripts and tweets and headlines and to kind of incorporate those into trading models. But I think what all this research is telling us is that ChatGPT is a lot better than the early generation of the technology in parsing nuance and context. And it can kind of understand a lot of financial news even if it hasn't been specifically trained for that purpose so i think what this tells us is there's probably going to be even broader use of chat gpt for financial purposes and also that it's going to get a lot better and a lot more accurate
3: what's the difference between chat gpt and the technology that you know traders already use on a daily basis. Um, You talk to any humans in this market and they'll tell you that the algorithms are taking over and um, it's just computers that are doing all the uh, trading at at very high frequencies often as well. So um, is ChatGPT gonna be able to replace those or are those computer models, uh, you know, made more specific to their jobs?
10: Yeah, I think when it comes to, you know, the first generation of this technology, it was very much based on understanding particular words. And so sometimes it couldn't really understand the context very well. Whereas ChatGPT uses this technology that kind of manages to understand where the focus of um, a piece of text is. But I think if you ask people who have been following this technology for years, they would say it's not necessarily a huge breakthrough if you're already familiar with, you know, for instance, Google's prior model called BERT. But I think what kind of ChatGPT has done is it's kind of opened up access to this tech that makes it um, potentially possible for a lot more financial firms to start doing this tech as well.
2: Is there is there the expectation that there will be some commercialization of this type of technology so that if a hedge fund wants to do it, I can go to, you know, chatgptfinance.com or something and, and, you know, get it from Amazon or something?
10: Yeah, I mean, obviously, currently, any one of us can go on ChatGPT and ask them to interpret a sentence for us. But if you really kind of want to use it on an industrial scale for a hedge fund, I think you do need to reach out to the firm for a license and something like that. And I think that is um, kind of something that a lot of hedge funds are now considering because then, um, you know, ChatGPT is not open source. And so in a way, you kind of need to give over your data to that software And a lot of firms will be pondering whether they should do that or whether they should, you know, rely on their own internally developed models.
3: What's the competition like right now? You mentioned Google's uh, chat or whatever we call it. Google's GPT. What does GPT even stand for?
10: Um, it stands for, I'm forgetting GP, but T is Transformer. <laughs> I just, nobody,
3: I mean, it's funny, you know, Elon Musk was on Fox News and he said he wants to start his own called Truth GPT. And I think he's trolling, obviously. Um, <laughs> but why do we have to put GPT, I always wonder at the end of all these, at least BERT doesn't do that. Um, well, what, what are the other competitors to, to OpenAI?
10: I just googled it, by the way. It's generative pre-trained transformer. Oh, um, <laughs> no wonder no one. Ever <laughs> no, one says no wonder. It. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean the last major breakthrough is Bert from Google. Um, I kind of mentioned this at the end of the story, more as a disclaimer. But Bloomberg now has a NP, um, you know, a a GPT as well. And the significant thing about you know Bloomberg's large language model is that it's specifically trained for finance.
3: But do we use? Have we licensed this from OpenAI? Is this our own chat GPT? That seems to be what everyone's doing. And I know um they offer that with Gpt four,
10: yeah, I think it's Bloomberg's own thing, and it's very new. Um, they released the academic paper on it, I think just at the end of March.
2: interesting right. stuff. So I guess the war I you know, I think we're gonna see more and more of academic support for this and maybe driving it forward because it just seems like it's well, and uh,
3: Microsoft, which obviously is heavily invested in open AI, yeah, yeah. has been using it for Bing. And now I all of a sudden find Bing, Bing is a, a lot thing, more right. useful than Google.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's Google's taking a, a hit on that. So, Justina, what should we look for next um, from ChatGPT and finance?
10: Yeah, I mean, there's been so many papers on this subject. Um, You know, I've read one where the researchers started using ChatGPT to even design an investing strategy. And and they said that it was better than random, um, which is sort of a low bar, but at least there's that. Um, But I think generally, um, you know, people have talked about how it could really jumpstart a lot of financial research. It's very good at summarizing things. So if anything, it will speed up a lot of processes. Right, good
3: stuff. If it's better than a monkey throwing darts, that's, that's actually a stuff. pretty high bar. That is <laughs> yeah. Justina
2: Lee. She's a markets quant reporter for Bloomberg News. She's based in London, and she's got this great uh, uh, story out on the Bloomberg Terminal, so check it out. Uh, talking about chart GPT.
5: Can decode FedSpeak? How about that? You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
2: Apple Computer uh, making a big splash or continuing to increase their investments in India actually opened their first store in India. I was surprised. I would have thought they would have had a store there, but they opened their first store. And Tim Cook, I saw some video of him in India greeting folks. Anurag Rana, senior tech analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. He's been following Apple for a long time. So Anurag, what's the strategy here for, for Apple and India, broadly defined?
11: Uh, so Paul, it's, so when it comes to Apple in India, India, Apple doesn't have such high market share in India. And, and the reason for that is these phones are fairly expensive. And frankly, you know, even 90% of them don't even qualify for, you know, Apple to be competing in that market because they are all sub $300 phones. But as, uh, you know, you and I have discussed in previous uh, discussions that um, as this middle class becomes more rich, they are more inclined to buy a luxury product like Apple compared to a lower end smartphone.
3: So, uh... I can't believe that this is their first store yeah. <laughs> in India. I mean, it a feels like, people. yeah, more, well over a billion people, right, <laughs> Anurag? And and talk to us about the size of the rising middle class. What are we talking about in terms of numbers?
11: Uh, yeah. So first and foremost, I mean, you can buy, uh, uh, you know, Apple phone in India through partners and through online channels. So it's not as if that an you know, Indian consumer cannot buy it. It was the first Apple loan store uh, right there. So, so, Making a d- distinction of course in terms of the market size, you know this is a country with over three hundred and fifty million people or somewhere in that range of middle middle class and extremely uh you know grow, that that particular portion is growing at a much faster pace in terms of the purchasing power parity largely thanks to a very large uh you know technology boom and the software ecosystem with most of the uh you know technology companies in the west have very large development centers in india and it's those young people who are driving uh you know the spending of luxury products and i think that is the real big opportunity in our view so it's I think it's over 1.4 billion people in total. That, that's right. right.
3: 350 million, million in the middle class. So that's more people than in all of America, and yes, uh, and they care. This this giant middle class. They care about high tech products, right? They want this stuff.
11: No, I I agree. But, you know, I would also say that they have been a lot more cost conscious about the products because if they can find a, you know, Android product from Samsung or another firm or another company that is equally or better, you know, they are not just bound by the brand itself. But, you know, Apple is a luxury brand. It is somebody something that people aspire for. And I think, um, you know, Apple will build products in India. And I think that way, you know, it is possible down the road, the products may be slightly cheaper if they are made in India. And they'll be building them there, though. I, I think what's the output
3: um, of, of iPhones out of India was like seven times more this year than they made uh, two years ago.
11: So Apple doesn't disclose that information. And, you know, you have to rely from a lot of media you know channels but you know we think it's still less than uh, 5% a lot less than that at this point because 98% of the phones as of last year were assembled in China now that is going to change over the next decade uh, but you know one of the things i would say is if a, if a phone is built in india i think um in the long run that would be uh, more palatable for the indian audience because it will not have export duties and other things that go with it Anurag, I think duties. maybe
2: two or three iphone upgrade cycles ago Apple introduced, a, you know, a lower price model specifically to appeal towards, you know, some of these emerging markets. That never really took off. Did they? Do they still have that? Do they still want to attack the market that way? Or are they waiting for people to just?
11: You What's know, that? The co- mini
3: or the SE? Uh, something. The what iPhone it? R. What? Which one is that?
11: Yeah, it is the SE. But you know, yeah. Paul, if I look at the, the smartphone install base in India, it's let's say about 600 million units out there. Ninety percent of them fall below the 300 you know, dollar price band. So even the SC doesn't qualify for you know, what you're saying, because even that falls yeah. into that, you know, 35% bucket or so, 35 million unit bucket um, or, or so. Um, and, and I think that's really is going to change over time, as this middle class becomes a little more affluent. You know, we think, for example, the current, you know, revenue run rate in India is, is, is roughly around 6 billion just on the, on the iPhone itself. We think, you know, that could grow at somewhere around 16, 17% over the next decade, nice. you know, reaching about 30 billion by 2032.
2: Some good numbers there, buddy. That's a, You can make some money on that off of that. Anurag Rana
11: doing the research
2: analysis with the numbers. Uh, Anurag Rana, Senior Tech Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Of course, you can find all of Bloomberg Intelligence research. Really simple. B I go. Boom. It gets you all there. Then you just click on Industry, click on Analyst, whatever you want to do. Stick in a, a ticker symbol and get all the research on there. Equity research, credit research. And as we learned today, we've got litigation research there. So if you want to... Bowing up on some of the litigation against uh, certain companies out there like fox and its defamation suit that it's going through starting today that's where you get all that research uh, bi go on the bloomberg terminal
5: exclusively for bloomberg uh, terminal customers you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 11 30 I was just showing, uh, uh, Matt, the Richmond Spider
2: kind of little hand signal thing. And then you kinda explained like it to me, but I obviously you, get it instantly. <laughs> you got it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Some people don't. But you're on top of that stuff. All right. Let's talk markets here. Um, we're going to welcome uh, Karen Pye. In, did I pronounce that correctly? Karen or Pye. Pay, Karen Pay. Thank like you very I much. Am Pye. I am Pay. I am Pay. Got yes. it. Who designed um, the Guggenheim thing. And the pyramid in front of the... Oh, the Louvre, Louvre. right. That's right. All right. Oh, you're just so worldly. Uh, Karen Pay, Head of Portfolio Management and Equities at Fiduciary Trust International. Karen, we're kind of getting into the thick of earnings season. I'm going to, for like 15 seconds, I'm going to get away from the Fed. What are you looking for in earnings? How concerned are you about earnings risk in this
9: market? It's a great question. So we've been saying that the markets should be shifting their attention to fundamentals as opposed to the Fed, which continues Thank goodness. to goodness, <laughs> <laughs> But it continues to be a driving force and continues to be a theme in the market. But in terms of earnings, we are concerned that um, profit margins are going to get squeezed. Um, you know, companies have been able to raise prices over the past year. They've done really a good job, um, especially the companies that have pricing power. But we are seeing that companies are going to struggle a little bit in terms of maintaining their, their margins. And we are hearing about companies talking about cost cutting. And you know, even when we look at the bank's earnings so far, um, margins have been held up, but they're doing so um, with a combination of better uh, revenues, better inco- Better income, net interest income from the banks, um, but also there's a lot of discussions about cost um, reduction and cost containment. I think that will continue to be a theme this year.
3: We heard someone today suggest uh, lowering <laughs> headcount by using AI
4: <laughs> uh, on Wall
3: Street. That's not good at one of the biggest banks in Charlotte, yes. right? Right. <laughs> um, so, in terms of the the Fed's impact, everyone seems to be pricing in, you know, one hike and then a pause. Okay. If you look at futures and and options you could see that they're pricing in cuts but i don't think a lot Mm -hmm. of investors really buy that what's your outlook
9: sure so markets i think are baking in about 85 percent um probability of another increase um in in may so but i think um you know there has been some expectation of rate cuts for this year that i think helped drive markets up um, during this first quarter our outlook is that we probably won't see that occur until maybe next year. And you know, our, my view is that inflation probably will be a bigger challenge for the Fed. Um, I think you know, the labor markets have been very strong so far. It's going to be a gradual grind lower. Um, and that means that inflation isn't going to come down as quickly as maybe the markets expect. And so as far as rate cuts go, I don't see that happening anytime soon.
2: Karen, you know, I think what a lot of investors, you know, really for the last 12, 13 years, they've been used to this technology, the big tech companies leading the way. And that didn't work in 2022. Mm -hmm. It's kind of come back here in 2023 here. The big tech names are leading the way. How important is it for you and just as you look at the broader market for tech to be a leader or can this market move higher? if it's something else industrials Mm. or small cap or something like that how do you think about leadership
9: sure yeah so i think that markets in the very short time period can sort of disconnect from fundamentals uh so last year um technology stocks didn't do well because they were fighting the tape, the feds tape in terms of rising interest rates. You know, it's the long duration trade that didn't um, work last year, um, given that technology companies have a lot of future growth that had to be discounted back at higher rates. Um, Valuation is a big part of it. And I think that um, in this market, we have to pay attention to valuation. In the very short term, like what happened in the first quarter, because of the shift in rate expectations that helped some of the valuation recovery in the tech stocks. But from a fundamental standpoint, we are seeing, for example, companies talking about reducing CapEx spending. Um, Taiwan Semi actually just this week talked about reducing Mm CapEx. So we're sort of on the other side of a lot of the um, spend that happened during the pandemic. When it comes to companies you know going all digital right so there was a lot of accelerated spending in technology i think we're on the other side of that right now so it's going to be difficult as a longer term trend to see um sustainable uh rallies in technology until either the fed pivots where um, we start to see rate cuts or until we start to see a bottom up Uh, bottoming in terms of um, fundamentals. And we start to see maybe some increases in growth expectations or capex spending.
3: How do you feel about the consumer? Because a lot of attention has been paid to bank balances. Mm -hmm. You know, previously we were all concerned with how much money um, was in savings accounts and checking Mm -hmm. accounts just to gauge the health of the consumer. his cup overfloweth, right? (laughs) Uh, But now we were all just looking at, you know, deposit outflows to gauge the health of Mm -hmm. the banks. I think we've gone back, we put that banking issue in the rearview mirror, and now we're concerned about the consumer credit use and the possibility of a credit crunch.
9: Mm -hmm. All great questions. So I think a lot about cash flow and, um, You know, I think we just talked about CapEx and companies are in a position where they probably have less cash flow. We saw that impact some of the, you know, private equity world and some of the venture companies, which caused the problems that, you know, we saw at um, Silicon Valley Bank. In terms of the consumer, I think that consumers are also at a point where, as you pointed out, low savings rate right? We also have um, a cliff that is happening in terms of the support that consumers receive from the government. Um, So there's not going to be those um, tailwinds for the consumer. I think Um, The one positive for the consumer right now is that the labor market is still very strong. And so we're not expecting the consumer to crater here, but we do expect consumer spending to slow. Um, I think it also takes a long time for behavior to change. So everyone's still kind of on a high from the reopening of the economy right now, and there's still a lot of Um, spend on travel and restaurants and we see all of that but um, the lower income consumer is uh, spending on credit card debt. Um, Right now the higher end consumer still has a wherewithal to spend um, but we expect that the pressures will be coming forth um, in the next several quarters that there would be um, more pressure on the consumer.
2: Karen I see kind of in your notes here you have a ESG investing license now, Matt and I kind of share, I think, what is a growing skepticism of ESG <laughs> in investing. We're not like the state of Florida or anything, but mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 there under the under the under the surface here. How do you guys at fiduciary trust think about ESG?
9: Sure, um, it certainly is a topic um, of interest. I would say that lot a lot more of our clients were interested in ESG investing and impact investing. Um, I think some of that maybe uh, definitely last year took a little bit of a turn in terms of um, you know esg uh, investing has been somewhat correlated to growth investing and correlated with technology Um, the way that we think about esg investing is we actually do believe that when you look at um, the esg factors like environmental factors social factors and incorporate that into your thinking, incorporate that into your analysis, um, it actually should help um, yield longer term better results. And the reason for that, and you know, sort of kind of folds into our investment philosophy is that we believe companies that are forward thinking, and think about their business risks, and to understand the trends that are occurring in the marketplace, will um, be in a better position to um, handle those risks. And to capture the opportunities when it comes to changing consumer behavior, changing consumer trends, and even some of the you know risks that might be coming forth um, from a regulatory standpoint or just um, from what's happening from a business standpoint. So when you do it right, it can be very beneficial. I think the issue is that um, you you do you know I think what raises your question is are people labeling ESG investing accurately? You know, And I think it's important for investors to really understand what's underneath the ESG labels.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, some people will put big integrated oil producers in their ESG basket, which <laughs> I, I can understand you can kind of do some mental gymnastics and justify it. But at the end of the day, I mean, <laughs> they're, yes. they're mining for hydrocarbons, right?
9: <laughs> yeah. So it's important to really understand, um, again, you know, to your point, what is in the portfolio yep. what is in the investment strategy and um, esg investing doesn't necessarily mean that you exclude um, fossil fuels or exclude energy stocks but it's about finding the um, highest quality companies um, and to understand the level of emissions and work with um, clients and and for those investors to understand what level of tolerance that they're willing to take yep. and what the opportunities are
2: karen thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it karen pay Head of Portfolio Management Equities for Fiduciary Trust International joining us in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios so you get a gold star for showing up.
3: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on
2: Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.